Hey, and welcome back to From His Taught. This week, you'll hear FreedomCast's quarterly livestream from Q1 2023. Just so you know, we presented an interactive visual during this stream, and if you want to see that version of the presentation, just visit our Rumble or YouTube channel. Stick around for next week's upload, where I sit down with a returning guest to talk civics, science, and gratitude. To be part of future live streams, subscribe to FreedomCast on your favorite video platform, and go to freedomcast.locals.com to join our free community where you get access to bonus material and discounted merch. Now, without further ado, enjoy as my partners and I explore the Twitter files and the censorship industrial complex. All right, cool. You guys ready? Listo. Estamos listo. Hey, look, we got a few viewers coming in between two platforms. Cool. It's always cool seeing them trickle in. All right, so uh, today we're going to go over a few things with the Twitter files. Like we said, we promised at the end of last year we're going to try to do one of these a quarter at least. Sam was feeling super ambitious towards the end of last year. He thought like once a month would be good. And then the first quarter of 23 hit. (laughs) That's been hellacious for all of us. (laughs) Well, you know. We're all busy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this, like I said, not, this is no one's primary gig yet. Um, it's actually funny. I was talking to a couple of the podcast guests, and one of, actually, I think two of them asked me, what do I want to like do whenever I get done with the PhD? And I said, definitely not be a professional podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of effort relative to production is insane. But anyway. Yeah. So hopefully we'll start turning out some more podcast episodes. We'll talk more about that in, towards the end, but... Good news is that we've got some really cool stuff, I think, to show people today, not just in terms of a live stream, but also in terms of a a data dump, or a file dump anyway. Many thanks to my colleagues here and our silent partner, Franklin, uh, who's with some family right now. So hopefully hopefully he's able to tune in at some point, but he will not be joining us for the stream portion of this. Uh, For today, we're going to go over the Twitter files again, but as opposed to kind of just freestyling it, We'll do a little bit of that, but we also have some particular aspects that kind of speak to our individual specialties and interests that uh, that we're going to touch on and give an overview of that. And we're also going to simultaneously, once this stream comes down and we get everything processed, what we'll do is we will upload this content to freedomcast.us under the content webpage. Apologize for the train noise in the background. And the... There will be two partner files with this. There will be a prototype database that contains Twitter files 1 through 15, except I think 9. And what we did was we, in line item fashion, went and began... (laughs) Can't hear the train, bro. Thanks, Cal. You can just chime in. You don't have to send chat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, in any case, what we will... uh, You will not be able to see real well, Cotton. (laughs) Great, great callback. But no, so we'll uh, we'll dump this database file, which again is kind of this line item uh, audit we've done of the Twitter files so that if people want to see the facts without the editor- any sort of potential editorialization, you can go in and just see what did happen between different parties. And we have set it up kind of like a relational database where you have agents in, as one table and relationships as another. Relationships are links between agents, which you'll see a lot of tonight. And Mike, hold up. Yep. Before we get too deep into that, uh, because 
Nicole did a poll. Okay. And a couple people didn't even know what the Twitter files was. Oh, so yeah. Okay. Let's just let's start there. Okay, Sam, what are the Twitter files? <laughs> Twitter files. Uh, so when Elon Musk took over Twitter last uh, the end of last year, right? It was the end of last year? Yeah, yeah. roughly. Um, he allowed a couple. Or, uh, he, he allowed a handful of journalists to come in and just dig through any of the files that they wanted to. And I, and I, and I believe that he pretty much gave them uh, the freedom to go to dig where they wanted to and to report on what they wanted to. And so the Twitter files is their report to the public of the various things hidden inside Twitter. So that could be anything from emails between like executives or it could be communications from Twitter to various agencies as we'll talk about or uh, yeah it could just be slack channels it could just be various Twitter employees just talking to one another um, and it's it's kind of it's 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 revelatory because it confirms many suspicions that I think a lot of people had uh, who were falsely accused of being conspiracy theorists but uh, I think in reality, they were more or less just Pattern. hypothesizing. Yeah. yeah, they were just it's like they people could sort of see the writing on the wall and it's not it's not conspiracy theory. Well, it turns out that they they were quite correct in, in a lot of their assumptions. So that's what these Twitter files are are revealing. And um, well, Mike, why would anybody care? Like, why is this important? Sure. To the average person, yeah, especially think, for the someone who doesn't even know what the Twitter files is. Right. Yeah, that's fair enough. And just so you know, we are monitoring the chat. Yeah, we can talk about chat GPT kind of in the freestyle session here at the end <clears throat> for sure. The <clears throat> why should someone care? Well, one thing to just maybe tune up a little bit from what you just said is with to be precise, they weren't doing necessarily the querying of email archives or of Slack channel messages or anything like that. They were providing the criteria for queries to people, and that actually matters in some of the early Twitter files because there was an intermediate screen in the form of a former FBI uh, leader mm -hmm. who was deputy counsel at Twitter who got fired because of potentially interfering with that, that querying process. But you know, to the extent this is a criticism that's been levied at the Twitter files journalists, which is, are you just doing the bidding of the world's richest man? And the answer is, well, they are receiving, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of documents back in their queries from, from these Twitter agents that they're interacting with. And you could say that, well, maybe they're withholding something from them. But the, the problem with that is <clears throat> you're always relying on a source for a news story. So at some point in the chain, you have to assume people are acting in, even if you assume they're acting on their own, um, in their own interest, you have to assume that they're being as transparent as is appropriate for the story. So if you have quibbles with that, that's totally fine. Um, and we could talk about maybe ways that people would have those fears resolved, if, if at all possible. But, but that is one thing I wanted to fill in. Why should you care? Well, because, yeah, the whole conspiracy theory thing, it's like we actually need, much like many of the terms in society, we need words to mean things. And conspiracy theorizing, at least as a pejorative, is actually something that is useful to be able to label in a way that says, hey, don't pay attention to this. Like, you know, it's kind of not worth your time to look into or, or whatever as shorthand. But the problem is we've inflated that term, like we've inflated so many terms, to where it effectively means nothing now. And so when Elon jokes 
with uh, Joe Rogan, for example, he goes, you know, turns out all the conspiracy theories were true, you know, in in the wake of the Twitter files. Um, it's like, well, were they all true? I don't know, but but certainly more than we were led to believe have been shown to have some level of veracity to them. And hope, what I hope we can do tonight is show you that it's not a political stance to be interested in the Twitter files. Like, there's a apparatus, formal and informal, that has been grafted onto these digital media platforms to facilitate not the expression of speech, but the suppression of it. And you should care about this, whether you're, well, in particular, if you're a populist uh, political enthusiast, because this has been done to suppress people on left and right in the populist wings, but also more generally because it's antithetical to kind of the norms and values that, you know, this country claims to espouse. So, can, uh, <clears throat> just to ask a real quick question, uh, what about, like, why should somebody care if they're not an American? Mm. So a lot of the stuff around kind of free speech versus censorship, content moderation versus free expression, uh, it does come, like, the debate stems from kind of a Western tradition of, of free expression saying something like, more voices, you know, over the long run, in general, more voices being able to be heard will cause less damage than selectively choosing which voices can be heard. And so that's actually an idea, you know, cultural artifact that I would like to think the West could credibly export. And to the extent that these digital platforms are more liberating than totalizing, it's not just limited to the United States. This is true for TikTok. This is true for, uh, I think it's Weibao, which is the Chinese version of Twitter. There's a lot of top-down moderation that happens at some of these companies. In the United States, it's supposed to not be that way. It's supposed to be uh, much more bottom-up and organic free-for-all or something to that effect. Unfortunately, it's not, and so it's starting to reflect what we see in, in other nations. But again, to the extent we believe something like free expression is, is worth upholding, then you know these are kind of landmark files in in how that can go wrong in an ostensibly free environment. I, got you. I only ask because uh, there's probably one or two uh, Malaysians in the chat, or could be at least. So. Sure, sure. Well, thanks. Yeah. The way I see it, too, uh, from an uneducated and un, uh, I guess informed perspective of the matter is that if the United States falls to this, what does that mean for countries that are less, like, I would say, I'm not saying like, oh, America's the greatest, um, but in, you know, as a patriotic American, I would like to say, yeah, America's the greatest. But if we're like the golden standard for the 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 basis of freedom and being able to be free, if that were to fall, what does that mean for company countries? Wild companies. <laughs> uh, what does that mean for countries that have less freedoms than we do? And so I don't know. It's just one of those things. Like I think it sends a message to those that maybe aren't may not be an American, but those that might fall into some form of we are a part of a free state or a free country. But yeah, if the freest country of them all falls, like what, what does that mean for us? Yeah, sure. I think, yeah, it'll be somewhat unsurprising to people to see that there's some intelligence, you know, U S intelligence influence here, which has long been the thing people point to, to say, uh, or the, the system that people point to, to say, you're not as free as you claim to be, or you don't live up to the values you claim to live up to, which is a totally fair enough critique as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, so we're going to go into that, and we're going to talk about this apparatus, this what's being called the censorship industrial complex, or something to that, the, you know, 
some sort of complex around censorship. There's a few different terms for it. And then we'll, uh, we'll each take a deep dive into a particular segment that interests us. I think Kyle's going to kick us off, kind of some of the internal dynamics. For those who don't know, Kyle has a podcast called Thought Pioneering on FreedomCast. And it's much more about the kind of organizational practices and culture. Uh, Kyle, you want to say anything about that so you can kind of tie that into what you're going to talk about tonight? Yeah, I'm a, I'm kind of the black sheep of the of the network. I don't talk anything about politics. Uh, more or less from like a professional development leadership mindset, uh, just based off my my career um, as an OD practitioner. But what I do like to focus on, and I'm taking kind of a newer direction, and we'll get more to that on what's next. But yeah, I I do tend to focus on the creativity aspect that we can all bring into our professional lives. Not only just professional, but like in like our personal lives as well. So. Um, not only what does that look like for an individual, but if you're a leader, if you have people that like direct reports that report to you, uh, what is that? How do you influence creativity? Um, and then taking a look at like real world creativity applied, I guess you can call it applied creativity and examine some of the successes and failures. So I, I just like to talk about that and then I'll bring in some of the organizational, like the psychology that comes with what does it take to be creative and what does it take to create an environment where creative creativity can flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Your second episode was my favorite of yours so far. Real quick. Uh, sorry to jump. Hey, sorry to jump in. Uh, are we, um, are, do we expect everybody to be seeing our faces? Cause I don't think that's the case. Oh, uh, they're not going to right now. They will in a second. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So as soon as we get clear of the, uh, of the Twitter files, um, or of this little network, we'll, uh, we'll go back to our faces. Um, gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Actually, cause... you know what? I can probably bring us up right here and bookmark it so they can at least see no, some of the cool. side panel. Um, so, all right. Uh, so Kyle, I guess we'll, we'll just jump off then. You're going to, you're going to talk about some of the internal dynamics. This is as far as we can tell, again, we're, we have not completely audited the entire Twitter files, uh, repository yet. Just 14 of the first 18. And that will be available in database form shortly. But Kyle, you're going to talk about the the internal dynamics at Twitter. So do you want to you want to kick us off? Yep. And just for if you can uh, hit the little back arrow for us real quick, Mike. Sure. Yeah. And uh, just I know the uh, the live stream is a little delayed. What I'm really focusing on is that little arch of uh, the Twitter circling back to Twitter. So you'll see here that we have a lot of Twitter is kind of the, the main instigator here of what we're going to be talking about today. Hence the name of the Twitter files. What I'm going to be focusing on is that little arch there. So go ahead, Mike. Sure. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. All right, buddy, go ahead. All right. So uh, just to kind of orient you all to what we have on the screen here. Um, we're going to follow the same format as we talk through the, the relationships of the Twitter files. Uh, what we like to have up here is you're going to have the Twitter. So in the top left, you'll have the, we call it the clade to clade relationship. So Twitter interacting within Twitter. Um, on the right-hand column or on the right-hand side of that, you're going to see the relationships. Uh, this will be tied to an Excel sheet that I think we'll be posting. Yeah, yeah uh, we'll later. be posting and we'll update it as we get more in depth. But we'll post the you know alpha version of it tonight. Right. So in the R column uh, you, or in the, one of the columns, you'll see a bunch of the relationships. Like in this case, these are all the relationships that we called out based off of the, our examination of the Twitter files that had to do with Twitter to Twitter relationships. So uh, that's just a little bit of a one-on-one on how we're going to be ex delivering this content to you today. And then I've highlighted R64 uh, just because uh, I, I look at that. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I thought I might want to expand a little bit more on that. So you'll see a summary. We'll all give a summary. 
each slide will have somewhat of a summary. And then for the expanded view, I have highlighted up there. So uh, the summary of this is that what we found is that a lot of the internal communications during the timeline that was represented consisted of agents from within Twitter looking for ways to, uh, which I saw and which we all saw, bend the certain policies in order to censor or shadow ban disfavored content from disfavored parties that were of those, those users, disfavored users, if you will. Um, we saw a lot of internal, and this is straight from, this isn't my take on it, this is fact from the actual Twitter, file, Twitter files themselves. Uh, we found evidence that there are a lot of internal communications that consisted of providing updates on discussions with government agencies about the censoring of content, clarification or troubleshooting, or how to bend a given policy so that an action of silencing accounts can be justified. A lot of those things that we saw were uh, around the, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Uh, about especially or when it came to Russian disinformation, I know Mike's going to talk a little bit more about the Hamilton, um, the Hamilton dashboard. And so we did see a lot that it, a lot of these internal communications were, hey, can we so if this were to happen, can we basically fit this square peg into this round hole? And there was a lot of pushback from within now I'm giving my my synopsis on it, but there's a lot of pushback from within that. And then eventually they would say, actually, we are going to try and classify it as this. There is no hard and fast rule of, yes, this is that. Even though that for the Hunter Biden laptop story, there was, there was like, hey, there's no evidence that this was a uh, hack, uh, hacked materials policy. And then follow the communication channels. And then it finally was like, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and assign the hacked communications policy to this instance. And we're going to let legal know, we're going to notify legal. And so what I have for the expanded view is that um, Yul Roth informs uh, the legal, essentially, that Twitter is going to officially label the New York Post story regarding the Hunter Biden's laptop as a hacked materials based on the the experts monitoring the election security and disinformation. And so that's where Yul sends that communication to internal Twitter team, informing them that they're going to be re receiving advisement from the third party resources and the intelligence community, as well as some internal resources that are also connected to the intelligence community that have either served on the Twitter board or from the Intel community that now serve in Twitter. Um, one of those agents is going to be Matthew Perry from the FBI. Uh, they schedule a meeting with the former FBI official. And then that same day, Yul Roth provides some more context about the hacking materials policy. So we found there that they're, they weren't necessarily amending a policy in real, like in real time, but it almost is what it seemed like is to be able to amend a policy so you can fit this scenario um, into that so that way they didn't have to go in and formally amend the policy because if I'm as a HR professional I wouldn't even call myself like an HR professional <laughs> in, in the OD space I'm not part of SHRM but if I were to look at SHRM's guidelines they clearly state on what you need to do and it's not like a hard and fast rule but it's more of like it's a question of ethics but what you need to do in order to amend a policy and so there's a long list of items that you need to do. And, and yes, involving legal is one of them. But I, for me, uh, from the outside looking in, that was more of a, hey, heads up, legal, we're making this change. So do what you need to do. And so for me, it was more of a question on ethics. Like ethically, a lot of times you run into that where companies feel like they're doing the right thing, even though when it's the wrong thing. And that's where we see, like that's where like the beauty of like the Twitter file is kind of exposing that is yes in, in a sense you may you may not have been justified but yes in a sense like okay you change the rules kind of mid-game but were they ethical were they ethical and so 
Um, that's the majority of what we saw from the Twitter to Twitter uh, relationships. It was more of a, hey, we're going to be bending the rule this way to account for. We're feeling pressure from the outside, whether it be from the FBI or whether it be from uh, certain politicians are going to be bending or from the Biden administration. We're going to be bending the rule this way so that we can, quote unquote, justify the use of this, like censoring the content, essentially, was the action that was taken. So, so let's take a step back from like that specific thing. So like kind of what Sam was talking about, talk to us big picture about like why this matters. And in terms of the Twitter's rules, what he what you're talking to, to there is essentially if we sign up for Twitter and we agree to their terms of service, that's, you know, fair enough that it's their platform, they get to develop their own rules. But, you know, you expect some uniformity and some consistency in those rules. And how does that violate this? Yeah, can I can I comment on this real yeah. quick? Go for it, man. Because, uh, yeah, it just seems to me from an okay. So I don't actually. I was never big into social media, so I I I didn't get onto Twitter or even Facebook or Instagram. Uh, and it just from an outsider's perspective, seeing this, it just means that their terms of service might as well just say we can change the rules whenever we want. And um, even because I remember, um, do you remember the Patreon scandal with Carl oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Benjamin? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So they, that was a big, that was a big eye opener for me. Cause that, that was probably what back in, what would you say? 2018, 2019, 2017, 2018, I think. Yeah. So, okay. Somewhere in there. Yeah. And th th I remember listening to a phone call that somebody, well, it was a transcript of the phone call between somebody and a, a uh, some customer service or someone in charge of their policies. Like there was this phone call going back and forth, like, okay, where, where exactly did I violate the rule? Where exactly? And essentially it all boiled down to just like, well, it's subjective. We can decide whenever to do it. Like that's, it was like pulling teeth to try and get them to admit it. Mm -hmm. They don't want to admit it. And in fact, that's why I think a lot of this stuff is hidden. Right. And they, they're probably their terms and services are you know, pages upon pages of legal stuff, but I think it all can just be boiled down to like, hey, we will change it if we think we can, and there's nothing you can do about it, and it's and it's all subjective from our end. At least that's that's my perspective looking in. I don't know, Kyle. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, from a like from an organization, it's it's like I mean, I don't know. I'm all, I'm never a huge fan of when you change the rules mid game, especially to. Uh, it's, I don't know, you're moving the goalposts, essentially. It's, it's like, it's cheating, in my mind. It's cheating. Um, and I get to, like, to a certain extent, yeah, policies should be amended. I, I'm not a huge, I don't, for one, believe in, like, if the policy is this way, it needs to be written this way, uh, it was written this way, it should be amended. Policies, not, like, rights, not amendments. <laughs> so let's, let's, in a company, because, like, I mean, Twitter is not the United States of America, so let's not, let's not go with it. Really. But for me, the policies in the company, because things change so rapidly, so quickly, yes, you need to be more relevant with your policies. Um, technology changes, so yes, you need to be more relevant. But the, from the fact of, hey, um, the policy clearly states in the hacked materials instance, the policy clearly states, like, going back to the Hunter Biden laptop story, Hunter Biden signed a, a waiver, and I don't, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of every little detail, but my understanding, he signed a waiver, says, hey, if this is forgotten or left or abandoned, the, it gives the owner of the shop full rights to it, and he signed off on that. Mm -hmm. And now the hundred, they come back and say, "Well, this wasn't my laptop." And then why is Hunter Biden suing the the shop owner? Like that just blows all that out of the water. So it's just more of a 
hey, we need to cover this up. What doesn't help, and I, I think we'll get to this later, is that the, uh, the Twitter actually ran a tabletop exercise <laughs> uh, for this specific scenario a couple months I back in June or July of the election year. So uh, at least three to four months before this became a real story. Yeah, so, I'll, talk, I'll talk about that. Yeah, Sam will talk about that. But it's just one of those things of we need to change the rules. And when you start having that done, you look at what happened, and I'm not saying Twitter is Enron, but you look at what happens when you start changing policies and doing things unethically when you have them like Enron, Wells Fargo. Like you can look at those those big failures. That's where you start to have an issue. And I think, for one, Elon Musk stepping in uh, was was a good thing because they, they weren't headed. I mean, in my in my view, they weren't really headed in a good play, in a good direction. So, yeah, uh, actually, it's a good it's a good segue into my. Uh, portion of it mm -hmm. i don't know mike if you want to back out yeah and... give me just one sec though i want to touch on one thing kyle said there because kyle sure. you mentioned you know getting legal involved with policy changes the trouble with that is for anyone who's seen uh the legal actors from twitter and these are all in our actors table of this excel file that's going to be a flat version of a, of a database essentially the vice legal counsel is former FBI and who likely helped facilitate certain things like that tabletop exercise. And the actual um, chief counsel was a woman named Vijaya Gotti. And for those who are unfamiliar, I would recommend watching. Uh, she and Jack Dorsey were on with Tim Pool, an episode of Joe Rogan, maybe, must have been 2019 probably, something like that, early 2020, yeah. something. And it's revelatory because what you'll see there is It'll put some some substance to what Kyle's saying in terms of the way that these things are constructed. The way their policies are constructed are not designed to, um, you know, facilitate the exchange of ideas, which is what you know Twitter had publicly claimed for so many years, and that they were kind of uh, politically neutral. Which is you don't have to be politically neutral, but if you are going to make that claim, then there should be some evidence of that. And you could see the way they were circumscribing their policies didn't quite fit with that. Uh, and yeah. and then they when they could no longer um, uh, essentially maintain that posture because of the dynamic nature around the election. And not that, you know, that was good in any sense, but that what they did was they essentially just tweaked things, you know, as needed to, uh, to overcome stuff. So I do see a couple comments about how they, how you can't see us. So we're just going through a few of the uh, relationships in the Twitter files here, and then we will turn on our cameras and turn off the, the uh, essentially interactive database here. I think later on yeah. we need to figure out a way to where it, we can like just swap back and forth. Yeah. We're technology illiterate with respect to streaming. We each have our own like things we do pretty well, but streaming <laughs> is not one of them. Streaming is not one of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but if I may go ahead, still chime, chime in on that last topic. You know, the one, one of the things that got me was it was the fact that they were trying to cover up a story that ultimately and it wasn't really so much like election interference, but it kind of was for one 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 directional election interference. It wasn't. It didn't provide a fair election. I mean, whoa. Well, I mean, I guess we'll get into that. But it didn't really provide. I guess what I'm trying to say, without getting too controversial, is that there were probably a bunch of people out there that that would have voted a different way had they heard the truth, had they saw, had they seen the truth. Well, that's unknowable, yeah. unfortunately. There's like some. There's one mock yeah. poll by like, I don't know. It's like one of the new digital right platforms that did something that said hey if you know did you vote for biden and had you if you had if you did would you have voted differently if you had heard about this story and it was somewhere between like 10 and 20 percent said yes but you don't know what that means and also the polling methodology there was abysmal so 
I'm I'm with you, Kyle, on in terms of like it's just like unethical in terms to to change the rules kind of midstream and to pretend like you're doing it for the sake of upholding a hacked materials policy when you need to remember the materials were not hacked. Like that whole thing was nonsense. Yeah. And in the controversy, this is something we've talked about before, but the controversy was never uh, Hunter Biden and his escapades that were extracurricular in nature, let's say, with respect to his personal life. That was, you know, colorful, I guess. And, you know, it made for good clickbait, but that was never the substance of what was or was not on that laptop. It was much more about um, potential, like, wielding of, of family name uh, yeah to and, and to be honest uh a lot of it there a lot of it garnered some sympathy because you yeah, had like uh, a, a dad who for more or less you know was trying to get his son yeah. to maybe shape up but you had mm -hmm. but the relationship there you could tell was a, was just degrading and 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 just not good overall and and so you had a lot of people just being like hey look you know having a son that's like that it's it's not good or if, if it's your if it's your life you know and you're addicted to some drugs and you have this life it's it's not pretty and that so so it's not that part of it's not really the focus so i mean we all we, a lot of us understand that aspect but the focus was on i would say the corruption for most people agree yeah it was on the it was on the morals of which they tried to change like they tried to yeah, they're trying to move the goalposts in an unethical way. Yeah, with respect to how Twitter acted, yes. And Sam, yeah, to your point, exactly, with yeah. with respect to the Bidens or, or you know, and and associates. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of the Hunter lab, Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, the I'm just going to go out and say it: the FBI, the intelligence community, they are not your friends. Uh, I at one point in my young naive life <laughs> I, I i believed i was like you know what they're probably good um and maybe they are maybe there's like some it's, it's probably a mixed bag right with with everything you've probably got some people that are um probably trying to uphold the american ideals and stand for something but unfortunately i think that they've gotten so big and they're they're think uh-oh kyle you there Well, it's yes. hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to really ignore the bad faith acting in the from the FBI and the CIA and, um, well, just the, the intelligence community in general. So, from, you know, we as Americans, we care about our First Amendment, and I think everybody should. Everybody ought to have that sense that, like, well, I should be able to say and critique and um, think how I how I want to. But I'm telling you the. The FBI, they did some pretty shady things in uh, that was revealed in this this Twitter file stuff. Um, so first of all, so like uh, a lot of the, you know, rewinding the clock and going back a bit, whenever there was any type of maybe censorship or shadow banning, there would always be something like, well, Twitter has the right to do what they want to do. It's their company. They can do it. And so you, you kind of got that response a lot if you ever complained that there was some um, shadow banning or censoring going on. But as it turned out... Wait, so just really quickly, Sam. What is shadow banning? Shadow banning... Okay, so I, I don't like playing this stupid semantics game. I, I think it's all a form of censorship. I mean, you are... Well, I... So the technical... I'm not sure if I could give the technical term, but it's something like um, you are not 
your reach as far as your post in Twitter is not reaching as many people as you think it is. And so you're sort of banned, but you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. Yeah. But essentially, it all could be thrown in the bucket of censorship. And um, I was, you, you get people that just infuriate me when they when they come up and they're like, well, it's not really censoring. It's like uh, deplatforming or or I forgot uh, these other terms. It's like you are you are putting your thumb on the scale, which more or less quiets your your voice and 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 limits your reach. That is a form of censoring. So anyway, the FBI uh, on several instances particularly would send in communicate to Twitter. They had a, a long lasting relationship, uh, several years that Twitter and the FBI communicated and became friends. Uh, and several requests to um, take several requests to Twitter to take action on certain people for violating of terms and service and uh, uh, spreading of quote unquote misinformation. Um, well, I think, so I was trying to think like, what, what could somebody say about that? How could somebody really defend that? I mean, just, just some random person, maybe try their best to defend it. I don't know, Mike, you could tell me what you think about this, but it's like, Mm -hmm. they could say, well, you know, Twitter is set up to where, uh, they rely on tips to, to, um, enforce their terms of service because you can't you can't look through every single tweet so the the fbi is like helping you know just this <laughs> you know helping twitter do this sort of stuff and i think that's i think that's well first of all so wrong if it's like me or you i mean, i think that would be fine but the fact that it comes from the government the mm-hmm. fact that it comes from them right is the big is the line that they crossed because mm-hmm. um, they are in fact they are supposed to uphold the the Constitution and everything it stands for, and they are in fact infringing on your First Amendment. They are um, limiting the speech of certain people, um, and whether you like it or not, at that time and probably now, Twitter is uh, the public square, if not part of the public square. So, one hundred percent, they were doing that. They are not your friends, and in fact, uh, they even. Uh, took legal action on some people for spreading misinformation. So, so imagine you sent some of these were jokes, by the way. So imagine <laughs> you send a joke on Twitter, uh, claiming something about the election, maybe the time of the election or something like that, and the FBI sends a request to Twitter to say, uh, "Give me all the information, including location information, that you have." on this person because we're going to follow up with legal action, essentially uh, taking legal action on people for lying. I mean, I I don't know how else to to really put that other than, yeah, you could probably go onto Twitter and and spread lies. Um, But that is now against the law. Uh, So yeah, so that was a big, big finding. Um, The next, the next sort of big one for me was the, yeah, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptops, laptop story, like Kyle had mentioned earlier. Um, and the timeline on this is real shady, real wonky, because the FBI actually knew about the laptop uh, missing out of Hunter Biden's hands um, probably a year in advance. 
they knew about it. Now, maybe it's negligence. Maybe it just kind of got lost somewhere in the paperwork and they didn't kind of figure it out. But a week, uh, no, sorry, about a month before the New York Post dropped the article, which was like in mid-October, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Maybe so, early. So in September, the, um, the, the uh, Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, uh, to be honest, I, I'm not as I'm trying to remember, I don't know which one sort of led the exercise. It could have been the FBI. But anyway, I'm lumping them all into intelligence community. They led like this tabletop exercise where they, they said, okay, they, they got together a bunch of um, um, big tech executives or big tech legal people, uh, maybe probably news media people as well, and said, okay, here, we're going to run through an exercise and we're going to call it the Burisma Hunter Biden leak or something like that eerily similar to what was about to happen in a month's time. And they had a play-by-play -play breakdown. You can find all of this in Twitter file. I believe it's number seven. You can see they, like they sent the, 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 the I think it's the FBI. They sent Twitter like a, a, a summary of all the things that they were going to go over. And it was like day one, uh, this leak uh, occurs on some small fringe media source uh, nothing happens. Day two, it gets picked up by bigger people. It starts getting circulated. Uh, so, you know, the Washington Post like rec like reports on it. Day three, we have to start. You know, it, it was just a, a, a day by day. This is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to respond. And they essentially, in talking with these heads of industry, these heads of big tech and media, they kind of primed them into thinking that this is going to be a hack and leak operation. So these, these are hacked materials and it's just going to be leaking for some nefarious reason. Who knows? And this is how we are going, going to uh, combat it. Uh, and this is, uh, well, the proof of this is uh, Yoel Roth, who uh, we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. He's kind of pretty, he's pretty high up in the Twitter file space or, or Twitter uh, space. Um, in a sworn statement, like I think it, it probably a deposition or something, um, he had he had mentioned that they had met with FBI officials months in advance to go over a hack and leak operation. So not only did he, and by the way, there's no reason for for anybody to to say, well, he was just kind of lying there because the, he, he, why would you lie? Uh, and and tell, give yourself a bad look <laughs> in that lie. So it's like okay. And so I'm pretty confident that that was correct. Also, in internal communications, when the story dropped mid October or so, uh, Yul Roth was on record in one of the Slack channels or maybe email. I can't remember saying something like, "Oh yeah, this kind of looks similar to what a hack and leak operation might look like," and they use the same verbiage. So it's it's 100 percent the intelligence intelligence community, FBI, DHS. They got with Twitter before. Yeah, they got with Twitter before the laptop story even dropped and said, hey, something might happen in the future. It's going to look like this. And it's a hack and leak operation. It's it's a bunch of nefarious people um, doing shady things. And this is how we're going to cover it. And that's like exactly what happened later. So either they knew that it was going to be leaked. Well, like I said before, they they had it a month in advance. They had the uh, 
uh, sorry, a year in advance. They, they knew the laptop was missing a year in advance. Um, or like they, they, how else can you explain it? Of course they knew what was going to happen. And so, um, the, the relationship between, between the, the intelligence community and Twitter, uh, it's, it, it paints this picture that they're, they are not your friends. They are at best. They, you know, um, they may, you may never get any interactions with them, but at the, in the course, if, if none of this was revealed, then it could very well have ended up to be where you could say the wrong thing online and then get a knock on your door from the FBI or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's very nefarious. Um, there's, there was another thing. Um, well, I'll, I'll let Mike get into it, but there was a, there was a, a, a there, there's this weird triad, this weird mm -hmm. relationship between the intelligence community, like talking with Twitter, but they're also, they're not just, they're not just saying, Hey, Twitter, you need to do this sort of stuff. And we're going to try and suppress people's free speech. They're also saying, Hey, look, according to this research, uh, this is how we need to respond. And, mm -hmm. um, the research there, Mike, you'll, you can talk about this, but the research there is also very, very shady and shoddy, let's say. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so yeah, on that point, Sam, you, you make a couple good points that I want to drill down just very quickly. Yeah. One, yes, there was this X tabletop exercise, which is just remarkable coincidence if it were coincidence. Uh, and again, it's not even that you have to think that there's some like grand cabal or conspiracy. It's just a matter of historical fact that it did happen. It happened at least with Twitter and Facebook. We have evidence from primary sources on both of those. And it's just, you know, again, because we're not trying to make this as a partisan point saying something like, oh, you know, the election outcome should have been different or would have been different. I don't necessarily believe either of those things. But the the point, the principle here is, why is the intelligence community uh, aiming its proverbial guns on citizens and their exercise of free speech? And yes, you asked something earlier like, oh, okay, well, maybe Twitter can high grade how it moderates its content by getting tips. Well, at the very least, what you should expect from your government is that if agent, you know, special agent Lewis at the FBI puts a call out to Twitter saying user Samuel Vernon 01 seems to be, you know, violating, pick your favorite topic that you'd violate to talk about. And we think it's in violation of your terms of service. It's like, well, what would happen if the FBI emailed us and was like, hey, your podcasts, uh, you know, they seem to be running or better yet, they emailed our, our web hosting service. And like, we think this uh, podcasting network uh, might be violative of your terms of service. I would be upset if the web hosting service booted us off, but I would understand why that pressure would seem like a tacit threat. Yeah. Well, what about this? I was kind of thinking of uh, analogies uh, a little while ago, too. I was like. What if they contacted your local police and said, hey, one of our satellites picked up uh, Michael Lewis's car driving over the speed limit through this intersection. Might want to go g give him a visit. It's like, the fuck is that? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Also, we will probably be swearing in this live stream. Pardon, par <laughs> pardon my language. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, yes. Uh, there is, yeah, there's just something that doesn't sit right. But more than that, what didn't sit right with me was the uh this kind of triad sam was talking about and i didn't focus so much on you you could probably make it 
a four-player system between Twitter and law enforcement, as he's laid out, or social media companies and law enforcement, and then as well as researchers. But there's another player here, which is the news media. So I focus primarily on the the social media, news media, researcher triad. But the reason there's so much overlap between the news media and Intel community and actually between the other two players as well is just look at where these alumni go. It's like if someone retires from who's a relatively public figure in an intelligence position, where are they going? They're going to news organizations to be, you know, you know, John Brennan, formerly of the CIA, and, uh, or James Clapper. Um, it's like these people who, some of whom lied to Congress, are getting high-profile positions now telling you that they're author- authoritative voices on what constitutes, uh, you know, maladies in the information sphere and yeah i think okay maybe after after you get done talking about your your section we should we should talk about this this circle this circle of influence that sort of just goes around and around Mm -hmm. and um well i'll just leave it there maybe we can we can discuss about that because it's 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 eye-opening i think yep all right so we'll go ahead and uh talk about i'm going to talk about the news media just for a quick second so this i'm typically talking about uh legacy media which i classify as kind of like organizational media as opposed to personality centered media that's not digitally native and like i said they're often staffed by these former intel officials but what they'll also do is they'll serve as amplifiers of particular research findings and this is something that working in social science i've like really struggled with because for a while it just didn't click that well, maybe they're doing it intentionally, or maybe they just don't have the faculties to be able to evaluate good research versus poor research. So what you'll see is a, is a selection bias in terms of what research gets covered and a framing bias in terms of how they cover particular research. So in the Twitter files, we see some of this uh, with respect to how the legacy media amplifies research that is negative about social media companies. And... It's not that there's not anything to criticize about the social media companies. There's good research, for example, that social media use, especially in, in young people, but particularly young girls, um, causes higher levels of uh, bat, you know, poor psychological outcomes, high anxiety, high depression, that kind of stuff. Neuroticism. Ne- yeah, well, yes, yeah, that probably predisposes people to that, uh, select people to that, yes, to be sure. But that's just sensitivity to negative emotion. That's the technical definition of that oh. personality trait for those who think we're like throwing a pejorative around like well would you say that it whether it's would you say that it like capitalizes on that or amplifies it or yeah yeah like it's it's uh acting on that right yeah so it's kind of like picking at that scab kind of um or that you know like just like if you have um you know if you're obsessive compulsive there's some things that might you know pull you in that direction essentially uh online and so it just happens to be that the current form of social media especially the highly visual forms of social media can uh, make people who are predisposed to high negative emotion or um, or or ins- have physical insecurities, for example, it can, as you said, amplify those things. And so there's plenty of like good research to create. And, you know, there's some evidence even that, you know, Facebook and, and or Instagram had some information that this might be what they were doing early on. And there have been some whistleblowers to that end of various, um, let's say, philosophical backgrounds. So there's plenty to criticize. But then this complex that's come up around by the way this is our government defining through 
under the Department of Homeland Security under something called CISA, C-I-S-A. I think it's the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency or something like that. They have this thing called MDM, and they may have updated their website since, but what was malinformation, misinformation, and disinformation? Uh, misinformation is false information that could lead you to make, could mislead people. Disinformation was intentionally false information that could mislead people, even though they didn't define it correctly on their website. And then malinformation is essentially true information that could result in a bad outcome. So if you want the government deciding what true information that they can decide results in a bad outcome, then, you know, be my guest. But as far as I'm concerned, that's far, well beyond the pale. In any case, so this news media players will often amplify these type of things. And one thing that's kind of fallen under this umbrella since the phenomenon of Trump or the phenomena of Trump, there's probably several aspects here, but is this whole like through line of well, any sort of thing that sounds remotely populist, whether it's right wing or left wing, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, is a function of Russian influence. And the answer is like, well, no, the hell it's not. And also Russian influence seeks to destabilize. And this lumping of anyone you disagree with ideologically as some malign foreign actor um, helps them achieve that. So if we're really talking about what's what's divisive and harming the country, it's probably more that than than people expressing genuine opinions, even whether they're, you know, misguided or, or, you know, on the mark. So again, <clears throat> what the news media will do is they'll act as amplifiers for select types of research. And this is where it gets really pernicious because we'll talk about Hamilton 68, which is relationship 100 here in just a moment. Essentially, the way research happens on a lot of these social media sites is they'll have something called an API. Just think about this as like a, a pipeline by which you can request certain data from Twitter and those data will be provided to you, um, subject to you meeting certain criteria and, and being approved. And, and this has since changed, actually, in the last couple of weeks since Elon took over. There's now a, a paid service that's way more throttled, and many people are upset, understandably so. But in any case, you have these what are called APIs um, that allow you to kind of pipe into Twitter's data and receive some of it back to you for you to perform some sort of research. Well, what happened was that this group... Uh, formed a dashboard that it, under the Alliance Securing Democracy, which we'll talk about in just a second, right? Three-letter acronym, ASD. Uh, we've never had any three-letter acronyms act nefariously that sound nice. CIA, DHS, FBI, whatever. Um, so the Alliance Securing Democracy, uh, at least some of the people associated with it helped develop this, this, uh, this board, dashboard. And what it was, it, what it claimed to do was track over 600 like Russian or bot accounts on Twitter and that they were able to track kind of what the Kremlin, for lack of a better term, is pushing out as a, as a narrative on, on social media. Well, the problem is that when, when Matt Taibbi and crew started digging into the Twitter files, they came across this Hamilton 68 issue, and what they discovered was that not only were they kind of skeptical of its claims, but that Twitter, under the old leadership, was skeptical of its claims. What Twitter did, likely by reverse engineering the uh, reverse engineering uh, the users that were included in this 600, and I think it was 44 users that were being tracked, they probably just reversed the API calls and were able to see who these people were. There's no reason to suspect that um, third parties like the people at ASD had more information on Hamilton on the on the folks in this dashboard than Twitter did, and Twitter found that most of this. Most of these people were genuine users who were neither bots nor Russian affiliated, and that they were something like, you know, 
tended to be conservative. They amplified stuff in the conservative space. So it's nonsense. And the word, I think it was Yoel Roth actually used, was biased, is that they, they know that essentially, okay, this stuff that is being caught up in the press, and there's dozens of press articles, you, you know, praising Hamilton 68 and saying that, oh, look, this uh, trending topic that happened to cut in favor of conservatives is uh, being amplified by Russians on the basis of this research that was this dashboard. Well, that was nonsense. Now, this got amplified by people in legacy media all the way from Washington Post to Politico. Ivy League institutions were amplifying this and and it's, uh, let's say, uh, what would you call it? Can I, ask, can I ask a question, yeah. Mike? Uh -huh. So would it be fair? Uh, well, okay, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that there's never been uh, Russian bots to influence no, anything no. or like, like attacking. So, so mm -hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. So go ahead. The issue is that, and I hope we can get into this later with something currently on the docket before Congress, which is the restrict act, but because of certain technological exploits and pieces of software, it can make pinning down the actual nature of a, of a social media user very hard. But there is evidence that there were Russian-affiliated slash sponsored bot farms in the lead-up to the 2016 election as well as Brexit. It is not obvious to me, let's say, that those are, you know, unabashedly pro-Brexit and pro-Trump as much as they were trying to just be destabilizing generally. So, in any case, that, you know, I hope that answers your question. Yes, there's genuine... Uh, there was even some genuine uh, Russian accounts in this list of 600. It's just the case that it was not the majority of them. Would it be fair to say that, okay, if you have used the argument against somebody or if you've heard it from somebody uh, claiming that, well, that's nonsense because it's all just Russian bots, you're likely to have been misled? Oh, that's a great question. I don't, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to, I, su I suspect. I don't think well because I, I say that because as I think back through the news stories mm -hmm. um, throughout Trump's right. uh, administration, a lot of the arguments where this is just Russian bots or this is Russian disinformation. And it sounds like what you're saying is, okay, every time I heard that mm -hmm. from either a news outlet or could be an individual, um, it's likely that they were misled and they're, well, they were, they were misled, I guess is probably the nicest way to put it. Yeah, I think that the mo I, yeah, you're being generous to the people reporting. Um, yes. I, I think that they were complicit in this because they weren't skeptical enough. They didn't, this is something that could have been known had they know, had they wanted to know that stuff like Hamilton 68 was mostly nonsense. Yeah. I mean, they, for example, you have those house reps here, two of the three, that I've listed and there were more are Democrats, but that one in the middle, I mean, he's a Republican sen uh, Senator or no. Yeah. He's a, he's actually a Senator. So I shouldn't have put him with the house reps, but he's from Oklahoma. And uh, in any case, like, so this was like a bipartisan issue and remains that way in terms of the trying to thwart Russian influence. And I, I don't want Russian influence in our elections. I'm just also a grown up and know that major powers try and meddle in each other's elections. Not that I excuse that. Um, Certainly not, but the class of quote-unquote disinformation experts we've inherited are totally falling short on the job, and they're not like they're not even remotely preparing us for what comes next with deep fakes and, and the like. 
can we just get rid of disinformation expert? Like what? The yeah, it's a made up title, right? Yeah. Yes. As, as Michael Schellenberger put on put it on uh, Rogan the other day. Essentially, it's like, oh, I'm an expert in truth. Like, oh, how how funny is that? Just generally truth. Like you can just yeah yeah. yeah. How convenient. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. Um. So no, they have generally no expertise, or their expertise is, um, goes beyond the measure. Now, I will say that there's you know, <laughs> I'm getting a PhD studying fake news. So. Uh, I don't know what that means uh, other than, you know, maybe don't do a PhD, but it means you're getting a fake PhD. Well, most PhDs are fake. The, uh, <laughs> the nature of things is such that I, I how many promise... have you tried to get Mike? Huh? None. So how far. many? Have... This is the first Just the one. No, no, no. Attempted to get, uh, attempt. I've only attempted to get one. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, you're talking about because I've been a part of two PhD programs. But oh, okay. I walked away from the other one. Yes, um, that was a bad relationship. You, you no, really no, no, dodged the bullet. I don't I don't want to say that because that that oh. lab was actually excellent. It's just that I couldn't see the form of applied science that they're doing continuing to get funding if they didn't focus on certain species of fish. So it's a very different prior life. What was Kyle? What was the joke that Mike is the Mike is the Ross, Ross Geller. Of, of Ross Geller of PhDs because the joke was Ross had many marriages and, oh, and uh, yeah, yeah. pursued many yeah. PhDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping that this one is going to pan out. Um, I'm close enough anyway. But the point is, like, so you know, I could try and like you know parlay what I'm doing into being like a disinformation expert. But I'm so unimpressed generally by my would-be colleagues that I wouldn't do that. Uh, there are some, but having said that, there are people, this is, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There are people who are doing good research in this information space, but they're very narrow in their focus, which is appropriate. But the problem again, is that the media will take something narrow and, and generalize it as if the entire phenomenon had been studied. And I, I talked to the, probably the most prominent researcher, one of the two most prominent researchers, uh, a guy named David Rand. He had been amplified by some third-party account saying, oh, look at this great research he's done. And it was, it was good research. And uh, I asked, you know, hey, is the fact that you ground all of your research on fact checks and that there's low reliability between fact checkers and low consistency essentially across fact checkers and that there's a necessary editorial decision in choosing what to fact check, is that a threat to, you know, kind of like the generalizability of your findings? And he goes, yeah, for sure. And it's like, well, okay, so... I don't fault him for that because he's being a good he's being a good scientist conducting good research with his colleagues, and he's also being a, an honest communicator of that science. That is not what the news media is doing. So let's get back to the 60, Hamilton sixty eight thing because this <laughs> is really where my blood begins to boil. And this has not gotten better, by the way, in the time since uh, since Twitter file fifteen came out. I think at least two of the next ones were. Uh, we're kind of around this topic. So again, we, oh, Alliance for Securing Democracy, as we mentioned. So here's a couple of the uh, early members. I believe one of them, the gentleman on the left, his name's John Podesta. You may know him from running the Hillary Clinton campaign. The guy on the right is Jake Sullivan. He was going to be Hillary Clinton's top, I believe, foreign policy advisor. He is now that for Joe Biden. So you're kind of getting a picture here. And then, okay, they'll say it's a bipartisan venture. Well, here's a couple examples of the bipartisan nature. There's Bill Crystal in the top left there, who's a neocon from the Bush era, and I don't use neocon pejoratively, it's an accurate description. Um, he is, he has been allowed back into polite society because of his boisterous criticism of Trump. And, oh, I cannot remember this gentleman's name in the bottom 
right. Give me one moment. I'm going to find it. It is uh, David Kramer. And so, so he's a uh, public policy director and undersecretary under Bush. And he, you might think, okay, well, that's fine. You know, they're just taking Bush era Republicans. But he's the one who leaked the Steele dossier to BuzzFeed. And for those who are not aware, the Steele dossier was, is now pretty much verifiably established as opposition research that is mostly false, if not completely false, front, paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign, misclassified as a campaign legal expense. That was settled last, almost exactly last year, like one year and three days ago in court, which might be relevant given some of the current uh, legal issues surrounding presidential candidates misfiling expenses anyway so uh did she get indicted no no she had to agree to a i think she agreed to like a settlement payment um it's a, huh. there's an article in like forbes or politico about it from march 31st 2022 um so so this is kind of the alliance for securing democracy so this is the group telling you and you can make whatever you want of of this but this is the group kind of you know helping to fund projects like hamilton 68 now here's something else this is from the new york times and there's a similar post or uh, article rather in the uh, Wall Street, no, not Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post. Uh, so from the New York Times, there's the secret experiment in the Alabama Senate race. So if you remember back in 2018, there was a contested Senate race in Alabama, which is kind of weird, right? Because it's pretty deep red, you know, Republican country. But what had happened was Jeff Sessions had been appointed attorney general by Donald Trump. So his, you know, Senator Sessions then became, you know, uh, you know, AG elect. Uh, sessions and so there were needed to be a someone to fill his spot in the senate <clears throat> well the republicans <laughs> nominated someone named roy moore who has a uh, colorful history to say the least but uh he was kind of a hand-picked selection of like the steve bannon types on the right and what the what was found was that the democrats in his who ended up winning by the way because so many republicans voted cross ticket or just didn't vote for the republican candidate because of, again, that kind of colorful past. But what the Democrats were doing in this race is they were shown to be creating fake Russian accounts to try and make it look like Russians were amplifying Roy Moore. Uh, so, I wonder if I've typed that in wrong. I think it's Roy Moore, not Roy Jones. Anyway, so you can see here that, uh, here's a snippet, or a couple snippets from there. We elaborated an elaborate, or we orchestrated an elaborate false flag operation that planted the idea that the Moore campaign was amplified on social media by a Russian botnet, the report says. And then you kind of read down and you see this person, Rene DiResta, and this company, New Knowledge, who was kind of consulting with this campaign, the New Knowledge, not necessarily uh, DiResta, and had this going on. Well, Rene DiResta comes up in a lot of places. Now, I'm not going to go so far as Michael Schellenberger has recently. You know, they've had, he and Renee have had a bit of a falling out. I wish, I think Renee is probably more like a Yul Roth character where there's things where, where there's instances where they stand on principle. But when it, you know, when it comes that inflection point, when that singular moment comes where you have to like stand and take the position that's unpopular, uh, it's questionable at best. And some people would say she's a, more of a malign actor. She's pr featured prominently in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. She kind of got her, her start by studying some of these original Russian bot farms, actually from the 2015, 2016 cycle. But she, uh-oh, let's see here. That's not great. Let's see if it's- Yeah, anything. that may have been just the, uh, the slide is um, not brought to the front, so it might be pulling in. No worries, we'll just go the, to the, the effect. Movie. 
Way to go, guys. I'll have to get with our chief content officer. I, I did not finish my PhD, and that's what happened. <laughs> All right, stay in school, kids. So the uh, so essentially here here's what we do. So one thing you'll notice in the Twitter files is there's this frequent mention of some of these high-profile universities, including Stanford. And Stanford has this thing called SIO, Stanford Internet Observatory, and they've been involved in a lot of different um, quote-unquote studying of disinformation or stuff to you know studying things to destate that destabilize elections or or around COVID conspiracies. And so you, you'll see here is her giving a shout out to Hamilton 68 in 2017. And essentially it's like, look, we've all had bad tweets. I'm not like mining people's social media history to make uh, a point about her generally. I am just saying that like everyone else, she as a quote unquote disinformation expert and take that however you'd like, uh, she is susceptible to confirmation bias and being unscrupulous too. And, and that's me being generous because some people would say that, no, she should have or she did know better or that the way she and her colleagues studied things was not meaningfully different than how Hamilton 68 studied theirs. You can also see something she wrote in a blog post, essentially, and I, I think I verified this is her, essentially following the election of Donald Trump, essentially saying this, you know, hashtag resist movement, which, you know, was like, if that's how you feel, fine. Uh, for me, it was kind of like cringy to see people in the research setting uh, be advocating for this kind of stuff. So anyway, this is kind of like the cadre of individuals that you empower when you say, like, we're going to, quote unquote, follow the science on disinformation. You're not listening to the David Rands and the Gordon Penny Cooks of the world. You're listening to folks like this. That's typically in terms of like being discerning. They'll they'll take, you know, what some of the actual good researchers are doing and they'll selectively interpret it or they'll bastardize it beyond recognition and they'll amplify that or they'll just allow for these mouthpieces that you see here to proliferate and and is there any reason to believe that they're better actors on average than you know people who are generally on the right or who are on the you know socialist left or who are just centrist the answer is no i don't think there's any basis for saying that these people should have you know authority over over what you can and cannot say or that they have some secret insight um that you know, others do not have. So anyway, I'll go back to this main slide here and then we'll just close out this PowerPoint and just go freeform. What you can do is when you get this visualization, you can scroll through the PowerPoint or you can just jump around by clicking on the different bubbles. Um, like I said, there will be a partner database that speaks to some of these relationships up here. These are kind of the primary keys for the relationships table for those of you who are database oriented. And again, this is a prototype. This is not the final version and we would likely need to crowdsource it in order to always be able to maintain an up-to-date version and maybe we'll do that uh, but the reason you'd want to do that by the way is so that people can start to study this in an analysis ready fashion because a lot of the effort that goes into making social media data study a bull is driven by an agenda and i think i hope as i've demonstrated here you should always be take a critical lens and be discerning when trying to read results and parse that from any sort of agenda that was built in. Yeah. So I was going to say, why don't we go like, I want to do like a, a, a super high level takeaway, sure. like your, your main takeaway from the Twitter files. Cause we've sifted through this junk for, I don't know how many weeks now. Um, Three and a half months. so, so Kyle, what's like the big takeaway that you have, if you could sum it up a few sentences from the entire files. Yeah, like the whole thing. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of pressure. So if I could sum it up, there seems to have been a lot of pressure uh, done from so given from like whether it be the FBI or certain. Um, I'm going to say even politicians, but like certain administrations, and it goes both ways too. Uh, I mean, the Trump administration wasn't completely um, like they had their hand in in some things as well, saying, "Hey, can we just not? What do you want to do about this?" So, and there's there's evidence that I think that. So my takeaway is that yeah, there's a lot of evidence of Twitter executives basically trying to appease the the higher those in power um, to to either cover up certain things or to shadow ban and in a sense, in a sense, put a mask over those who, who are trying to speak freely. Yeah. I, I, for me, I would say my biggest one, actually it kind of jumps off of Mike, a lot of stuff that you talked about, because the biggest thing for me was looking at all of this and just coming to the conclusion of like, man, you really can't trust because someone says, well, we're going to follow the science. And you, you think you'd, most people would like to think to themselves like, okay, yep, science. That's a good thing to follow, to understand, and to to uh, kind of get behind. Mm-hmm. But you really can't – the Twitter. everything that's come out of the Twitter files has just led me to believe that you really cannot trust this stuff that any of these people are saying. Um, whether it is sp- sp- people that supposedly are supposed to be for America's interests, like the, the intelligence community. Or even if you think it's read, it's stated in a terms of service, you can't trust them. Or even if it like news outlets are all reporting on the same thing, it's very difficult to, for me anyway, to read all that and to trust it. And so I would say, don't trust Verify. Don't trust. And Verify, yeah. part of mine too is like if you follow the money. Like look at how much of internal Twitter like employees, how much they donate, or how much of like donations went. To either political party, it was like ninety was it ninety percent went to to democratic or to the leftist uh, parties. And it's just yeah. like, well, then why would I trust? I mean, not. I mean, yeah. Why would I trust it to not lean one way or the other? Yeah, well, because they I would claim. always they they just claimed like, oh no, we're bipartisan. Yeah, and if you go back yeah. and watch, like Mike had talked about that that Joe Rogan episode where it was Vijay Gotti and Jack Dorsey sitting down with Tim Pool. Uh, they were like, oh, we're 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 not partisans. We are we we listen mm-hmm. to both people on both sides, blah blah blah. It's like really? You yeah. more than half like the majority of your company donated to mm-hmm. a particular political party. Are you telling me that your company and all of its code and all of its lines of content is not biased in one direction? Come on. Well, it's not even so much that I mean, you know, for those who are on here, I know that I've got some former students and uh, some colleagues in other spaces on here. Like a for loop is a for loop. It doesn't matter whether a you know a communist writes it or a you know rock group conservative writes it. It should execute the same way. But in terms of what's um, the systems you're designing and the way you're penalizing, like you know, or uh, tuning a loss function for an algorithm, those are not. You don't get those de novo. Like those don't emerge from nothing. You have to quantify at some point. And so yeah, you, but- you, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, if I understood you correctly, you just said, like, code is code, right? And so, like, it's 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 written one way, and that's the way it's going to be. Right. Go, Republicans correct? don't write – well, <laughs> the tools that are available to Democrats are available to Republicans. So, like, you can build correct. anything as either. Yes, correct. But uh, as um, Kyle brought up in his in, in his topic, was, like, it's it seems so subjective that how they apply their terms of service right but that's not a code 
that's not so what we've found like i i don't think the algorithm quote unquote there are certain forms like you can think about the misgendering type thing for for particular trending topics historically that has been code enforced and it has it is embedded in it a political position whether vajaya acknowledges it or not it is the factually the case that it did but in terms of like that code the code is neutral like it's as one of our for sure i don't it's, it's yeah binary. i don't disagree but the the algorithm that's where the where any sort of uh partiality comes in is at the human level and right. so yeah if you say something like i i we do an audit because you have audits for where employees for companies donate and this is by the way in the flat file version of the database we'll release because it was highlighted in twitter files but this is publicly available data it's so it's auditable it's something like between 55 and 60 to one in terms of Democrat to Republican donations. So like there's not even the pretense of balance. Now, look, I don't really care whether a company does all one way or the other, but like no one is saying that Gab or Truth Social or Parler or even Rumble is politically agnostic. Now, Rumble is saying something like we embrace free speech, but they've built their original political section around conservatives who couldn't express outlet, you know, their, their stuff elsewhere. But there's not this gaslighting that goes on. And I would say that that's kind of like, for me, the biggest takeaway from the Twitter files is around that, that gaslighting, which is not like you gotta, it's not that you have to be skeptical of all the science. It's just, you have to be, and not that you can, you can just do your own research because there are domains that require like special knowledge and years of training. Those tend to be like, you know, very applied or very, very applied as in like cardiovascular surgery or very basic in terms of science, in terms of like particle physics. But at the same time, a lot of the social science stuff, a relatively well-informed person who is just an engineer, let's say, no offense, Sam, uh, can, uh, no, you could pick up this paper and if you can get through all the, um, kind of this masturbatory exercise of academic jargon, you can like get to the results and you can understand what the hell they're saying. But the thing is, it's time. And so what the news media had traditionally done, what science communicators had traditionally done was, you know, distill that down into like what it, what mattered and what you should focus on. And unfortunately, I think that so many of our institutions today, this is my takeaway is they're not worth your trust. I'm not saying that that's good or that I want that. I don't, I wish they were. Uh, and I'm not saying you should quit listening to them at all. I'm saying you should listen to them, but you shouldn't only listen to them. And I can't say it any better, any better than that. If you, if you're interested, you can see this tension battled out between Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi one, like roughly one month before Matt Taibbi began the Twitter files as they debate, uh, Michelle Goldberg of the New York times and Malcolm Gladwell, uh, in a monk debate from late last year. Highly, highly. What was recommend. that on? What, what was that on? Um, monk debates. No, no, no. The, the topic what was the debate. Oh, the, the debate was on, uh, be it resolved. Uh, you cannot trust the mainstream media. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. one. I, I remember seeing that. That was a good one. Yeah. All right. So we have a question from Sarah. It says, how do we know if Twitter is headed in a transparent, trustworthy direction under new leadership? Do you know of any new policies in place? Um, so do either of you want to take that one? I don't know of any new pot. Wait, 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 new policies. Hang on. Um, I mean, I, I, I only know maybe what, uh, what was what Elon Musk had maybe tweeted. So actually to verify if the policy is there, mm -hmm. no idea. But um, I think he, he, he expanded a lot of the 
free, the the free speech rules, if I'm not mistaken. Um, things that you like previously could not say he 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 then allowed. Yeah, so there's there's less ideological enforcement um, of a certain t- kind, but it's not this free speech haven that he claimed it would be. Correct. Um, there are people who've still not been reinstated, and I'm not arguing for or against. That's just again a statement of fact. Uh, he, in terms of new policies, there is the ability to pay for Twitter Blue, and then you are verified in the same way that uh, people who were you know blue check users previously were. Um, so you have access to kind of greater features and affordances through the platform and, and more reach as an example. Uh, so that's been good, but not without hiccups because people started impersonating other, like they impersonated Elon, for example, as kind of like a thumbing their nose at him. Uh, they, I think someone impersonated Eli Lilly, which is, I think, a pharma company. And they said, starting tomorrow, we're giving away insulin for free or something to that effect. And their stock went way down for a day, you know. So like people like you're panicking about this stuff, but that stuff gets worked out. And uh, so that's one example of a new policy. Another new thing that they did was they open sourced the code uh, for at least certain aspects of Twitter's code uh, this past weekend. So that's available on GitHub for I mm. we have one Microsoft person but, online. Do you know like what part of the code was open sourced? Uh, it's I think it has something to do with the uh, ranking algorithm or the newsfeed algorithm, but I don't mm. I haven't looked at it. I've looked at a couple screenshots of it. I haven't investigated it deeply. Mm. So those are a couple, I think that stuff is more transparent. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly like that's a more transparent verification process rather than Twitter gets to say, okay, you're important enough for us to verify your identity, right? Which turned actually was just like kind of social and political favors to people. Um, yeah. Now there's downsides to that too, right? Cause like anyone can get verified. It could be a picture of a cat in your profile and like, who the hell are you? But so those, you know, those moves are transparent. Uh, he goes in, uh, you know, he's working late nights with some of these teams, uh, you know, out in San Francisco. So he's there. He's boots. He has skin in the game. Let's put it that way. He has, you know, whatever, $44 billion of skin in the game. Um, and I, I get, think I get the impression he does care about it. But, you know, people will criticize inconsistencies and hey, fair enough. But that's it's far less inconsistent yeah. than the previous leadership, I would say. Yeah, I think it's going in a better direction. Um, probably it, it, it may not even be going in the direction that, you know, I personally want but i think it's a better direction just by the fact that he released a lot of internal stuff and allowed journalists to come in and just report on the inner workings of of the previous um uh, team let's say mm-hmm. so i think that that's already a step in the, in the in the right direction so that's that's my opinion well he's adding more transparency so that way there's no <clears throat> like there's no theories that you have to create it's like Okay, here's the open book. You know, making the the, the source code um, available. It's like here we're making things more transparent. So that way, it's if you do have any questions or you do want a question, you can just go look at it yourself. Of course, I well, don't know what. Yeah, subject again. This goes back to like having yeah. the knowledge, right? Because you could you could yeah. see a situation where someone says, okay, well now this m- greater availability of information, I can selectively pick and choose things to kind of create my own narrative and to p- for people who are either too busy or unqualified they cannot go in and and verify this for themselves so they're just taking my word for it so i think that you need to find again it's it's okay to listen to kind of legacy media on this stuff but you need to find some trusted voices kind of Mm -hmm. from a variety of perspectives so that you reduce the likelihood of being a falling prey to a lie that is maliciously motivated but i don't i mean it's are you saying don't trust verify 
Well, don't trust. I mean, to the extent you can verify, I would say don't yeah. trust verify. And if you can't verify, make sure you're diversified. Yeah, because I mean, I can go look at that source code and be like, cool, commas, semicolons, <laughs> that looks great. Right, right. But then Mike might look at it and be like, hey, you know, they cleaned up the, this is not as biased as the old one. I'm like, cool. You know, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's, so there's more, ver yeah. you don't, to verify, you don't have to know code, you know. Um, well, you do if and, you're going to you audit a piece of code. Yeah. Well, yes, but uh, no, that, that that's for sure. But um, there are there's other means, you know, you like you, the Internet sleuths out there. I, mean, I feel like the truth, the tr as, soon, as soon as you put something as open code, I think the truth will come out. Yeah, maybe. But you, yeah. you have to trust those sources, though, because they might just try and pull the wool over your eyes. And be like, see, it's not that bad and just sell it to you. And if I think that's kind of like the big takeaway is, yes, trust, but verify, but also being able to think ourselves and i see that happen a lot where people just take others words for it now this whole issue of trust gets brought up i think from an organizational standpoint twitter has lost the trust of a lot of people mm -hmm. as it should have i think it should have and this is a part of that rebuilding phase of okay from from an organizational but also from a market perspective they need to rebuild trust mm -hmm. that's going to take time as, as trust goes down the the timing the speed goes down as well and that rise the cost of everything. So in order for it to get one thing done for us to verify something, cause we don't trust Twitter. Think about how much time it took for us three months to go through and look at something, how much time. And if they, you want to put the dollar sign to it, how much money did that cost for a third? Like, I guess we could be a third party, but a, re, a group, an independent group to go through and, and understand. So you look at how all that ties together, but yeah, Twitter's they're going to have to go through a big, um, kind of re regaining the the trust of the market and, and organizationally, you got people who don't trust each other internally as well now. So, well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know about the the internal dynamics because I there's been such a reduction in the workforce. I don't know. You know, it's it's tough to say whether he got that right or wrong in terms of did he keep the right people. Um, I'm sure that there's type one and type two errors in both directions, but the it does seem though that he is sexist because now all of his employees are. Or like all, all the females that or everyone that left was female, right? Well, there was that one picture that went around where it was like a predominantly female team that like had gotten let go. And there was a predominantly uh, male team uh, that was he was working with like late one night. But that's I, I've, I haven't seen any like empirical evidence Wait, other than I know, those I'm two joking. cases. But yeah, yes. but what teams were they? It was if it's like <laughs> it was like the HR team. Yes. Like. Like the, well, they the, tend to be, yeah. The the joke was like um, Elon came in and said, "Hey, we're gonna all work." Well, okay, so back up. You know, you saw those that day in the life of a Twitter employee video where it's just like, "Hi, I get to work at whatever oh, time. Right, right. I'm, I drink a latte in the morning, and then I go do yoga for thirty minutes, and then like she she, she goes throughout her day, and she's only done like maybe an hour and a half of like meeting work." You know, may, maybe, mm -hmm. but it certainly seems like the majority of her day was not working. Uh, and then Elon Musk comes in and says, hey, we're going to work really hard and um, work, pretty much work long hours. And if you're not into that, um, I'll pay you, you know, a certain severance package and then see you later. Uh, and then the workforce that stayed were all men. Um, well, maybe not all, but anyway, the joke is that, yeah, yeah right. well, he's sexist it's, because yeah, he's not it's, it's all reasoning from cases, right? Like, oh, OK, like you, I. For example, I saw those videos too. I think there's two of them that went around. And it's like, okay, well, those are like two relatively associate level members of the Twitter team who probably were not kept in the reduction in workforce. 
But just because one code team is predominantly male doesn't mean that another one is, right. you, know, right. you know, doesn't cut the other direction. So I don't know. I mean, I think that, the, you know, we got a comment that says he doesn't seem like he thinks things through, which maybe on the $44 billion for a company that's worth like nine or whatever it is, maybe on that front. Uh, but I, I don't know. Um, I think the reduction in workforce that we're seeing with Twitter is like, I think that was more of a leading indicator of kind of tech and the bloat that happened following. Well, you saw that, you saw that like Amazon and Facebook, they all Microsoft let people and, off. Yeah. So, so maybe Twitter just got, went ahead of the game. It was just like, all right, well, we got to reduce. In terms of relative cuts, theirs was, were much steeper and much more immediate, but it's not clear where things are going to shake out or that the relative employment levels versus the amount of software being produced are going to be meaningfully different, you know, 18 months from now between these major tech companies. I don't know. I hope not. Uh, cause I've got friends who work in tech, but also like he's an engineer by trade. So like the idea of like, you know, lean process and lean manufacturing is like, I'm sure built in. And, uh, you know, I, I heard a professor describe once that you're asked like, what do you think about Elon taking over Twitter? This is maybe April last year. So it was kind of still rumor stage. And he goes, you know, I, first thing I want to say is I really like Elon for, uh, for electric cars, uh, for solar power, and for reusable rockets. But I'm not sure he's the right guy for free speech. And it's like, well, first of all, there's not a right guy or for social media content moderation. It's like, there's not a right guy or a right gal for that. That's not something that one person gets to decide. But second of all, it's also like, with respect, like you're a relatively high profile professor, fair enough, but who the hell are you? Like how many companies like yeah. this have you built? So I don't know. I mean, he, no, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, like, he does seem to fire from the hip a lot. One thing that you can do with software is you can revise it. So a lot of those policies changes that get reflected in software can be revisited. Um, so a lot of people have this negative view of the move fast and break things culture of, of Silicon Valley. I think it's kind of like a time and place thing. Like there's times where it's good and relevant and maybe when you're testing new features on a social media platform, that's one of them. Um, it's just that, you know, everything is so heightened now, right? It's a political act to change the Twitter policies. It's like, why is that the case? Well, it's that, that's the case. It's not the case because of Elon. That was the case long before he got there. And that was yeah. the case after the 2016 election. They said, we'll, we'll make sure policies are placed so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, that was a very weird thing, right? That came out where it's yeah. like, what do you mean by this doesn't happen again? Because that, that happened exactly. to a few different companies. And um, it's like, okay, to the extent you mean like you're going to be more diligent in, in policing like actual yeah. content that's bad, um, fine. Like not bad, but like uh, it's actually like, but, genuinely foreign, genuine foreign influence. Fine, but like that does just like deputize people to say, "Well, this is foreign influence, and therefore take it off." Right, which is kind of what we saw unfold. Well, it's like the I always think about like the if you have like if you work for a company and they have like fishing, um, or uh, like fishing, uh, what they call it, campaigns. It's like, well, I'm just going to classify everything as fishing because everything looks like fishing. And so it, you don't really drill down on like what does like what does a phishing email really look like? And now you got a bunch of real emails that go sent to the the cybersecurity department. Like, well, these are real emails, but right. people are just conditioned to be like, oh, well, that's Russian disinformation, or that's this, or that's that, and then they flag it, and the next thing you know, you got this downward spiral of content that just it it shouldn't be flagged. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there's an inflation in terms of the, again, the maladies in the information context, unfortunately. 
because um, you, you actually like I'm not in principle against the term disinformation like I think that could actually be an accurate label but I don't trust anyone who uses that as their calling card if you say like I, there's a class I'm of information gonna... that is I, I lie to you in order to manipulate and mislead you like I think that happens I do think that that is an objective thing Ooh. that exists in the world I just don't yeah, trust I, anyone who says that that's my job is to spot that yeah I I I'd have serious distrust when i hear those words because i feel like they're 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 buzzwords i mean mm -hmm. lately there's been a lot of words that crop up that are like they kind of sound okay to use and you kind of get in a sense of what it might mean but it's got some nefarious uh meaning behind it right um and uh i think you, people are only wise to it a bit later so uh i, I yeah, I don't like those terms that that malinformation, misinformation, disinformation, all that stuff. Um, I, I get that it has different meaning, but um, I'm very skeptical when people start using it. Yeah, yeah. just like that in Ego Montoya. Uh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we have, do have another question coming in. Do you think Twitter has affected human behavior as it relates to how we convey and consume media? So few people are actively on Twitter, yet Twitter is used in mainstream media news coverage? Yes, in short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I do. I mean, I think Twitter only amplifies, I think, well, it, it brings out probably the worst in us as far as uh, when it comes to quick responses and, and, and being aggressive and hiding behind an, an anonymity. Mm -hmm. Can't say that word. But yeah, um, I don't think it, I think it, it's good for some things and bad for others. And I think uh, we are seeing a lot of the effects of the negative aspect of it. Mm. Okay. I think we lost some of the steadiness with it. Um, kind of the thinking before reacting. Oh, okay. Phase. Uh, when I, when I mean by steadiness, I mean, I mean, that is really thinking about what you say, the impact that it has on, on others um, there's just a lot of mean people out there and <laughs> it, it brings our little inner gremlins out. I'm, I'm guilty. Yeah, like there's been times where I've really like that. I've seen stuff on Twitter. I'm like, this is not true. And I really like, but is it worth me to engage? And that's like, cause I know they're going to come back and they're going to do like oppo research on me. And then, I mean, they might find something I did, you know, 30 years ago before I was born. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm, but anyway, so it's like, it's just, is it worth it? Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I, I do think it it has changed in how we like it are like how quick we are to anger. Um, it's so much easier just to fire off a quick response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good shout out from Sarah. Good word choice. Steadiness. I agree. Yeah. I feel that myself too when I use Twitter. I probably use Twitter more than the two of you combined, and uh, which is not saying a lot because one of you uses it zero. Um, but the uh, yeah, I I've noticed it. And I try to change at least how I've communicate over the last year or so with Twitter. Cause I used to kind of just want to like engage in the stuff that I thought was like, kind of like righteous pylons and that sort of thing. And that's not very productive. And, uh, even if I totally do agree with it, sometimes I think to myself like, okay, well the, if the counterpoint is already out there, then like, just let the counterpoint be out there. I don't have to like add to that, that discourse. Um, so I think being able to focus about focus on how and why you use different things. Um, or different online tools is important. I don't know if if there's a you know society wide solution to all this because you're essentially just asking people to be better people in a in an environment where human nature takes over. So 
I would say that probably what people should do is, again, find the voices that you think are worthy of your trust and make sure that they're from diverse perspectives. And then if you're not in the battle of, you know, the contemporary discourse, then check out for most of these things. Like, you don't have to be a part of, like, Facebook can be a thing where you're posting with friends and family. It doesn't have to be about politics. LinkedIn can be a professional network. It doesn't have to be, you know, flooded with political sloganeering as it comes in different cycles. So... People can say anything online. They need to pause and think. Would they say that to a person face to face? Yeah, that is the yeah, lack of. Uh, and I'm not using this as like a euphemism of accountability. Like you're not being account. You're not accountable to your words. That's why I don't use social media anonymously because it's like, I, I don't want to be like you know. Oh hey, we found your hidden Twitter account. Like, like I'd rather like if you hire me, like you just know like this is kind of where I stand and what I do. I do good yeah. work. Um, I'm happy to talk about this, but I have my work stuff too. Uh, I think the anonymity is important for like whistleblowers and that kind of thing. Uh, and I can understand why in a kind of a hegemonic culture that enforces its dictates very strictly, why people who are counter hegemony would want to be an anonymous, but I don't think it's a long-term solution. I think it creates way more problems than, than it solves. Well, mm. that too, but like just emotional intelligence is like, I think online is like, is an all-time low just the amount of emotional intelligence it takes to like just be to have that reservation be like or that reserve to be like ah you know i wouldn't say that to them in person uh in person your your ei or eq or whatever you want to call it is a little bit higher but online it's just like that goes out the window um yeah. in some cases because like make... Sam's point the anonymity is i can hide behind a keyboard and you know, I, don't, I don't have to i can create an alias for myself and yeah. i can like be that that monster that I can just let it all out and so yeah it kind of it it, it... Uh, encourages people to be impulsive and just say kind of like what's what's kind of at the tip of their tongue or something like that and not really hold back because there's no consequence for it mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah it, i don't think it 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 definitely I, I i i've always thought that social media in general has good qualities that like the the information can be out there to go get you know you can like mike said go look at different points of view and like you can see the information that's out there uh, and it, it could also be helpful for staying in contact with friends and family that are distant. Um, but it comes with a lot of negatives. And mm. um, I think the the wise social media user understands those negatives mm. and kind of uses that when they're when they're figuring out whether they want to post or not post or mm. engage in social media at all, um, because that's definitely something to to keep in mind. There's a lot of um, aggressive, anonymous people out there that you're engaging with, you probably shouldn't even engage with them. Mm -hmm. no. Yeah. We have another chat that says, I'm concerned about how uh, the relentless consumption of bite-sized information affects critical thinking skills. Well, Kyle, really quickly, Kyle, you and I will have to have a conversation at some point about emotional intelligence because I don't think <laughs> EQ is... Uh, it, I, my understanding is if you factor analyze it, it doesn't reliably present itself after controlling for general G intelligence, which is not a perfect measure, but it's fair enough. And the big five, but maybe I'm wrong and we can chat about that as a crossover episode. But this, to this point about affecting critical thinking skills, I agree that bite-sized information affects critical thinking skills, but I think there's, it's not just the character count of information. It's also the quality of that information. So I can read a two or three sentence tweet that is 
rich in novel information. Or I can watch a news report that is essentially telling me nothing other than what the producers of that news report want me to think. Yeah. It is probably easier online because the nature of everything is so, you know, seeking of your attention, trying to keep you on the platform and designed to be uh, easily consumed. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a unique thing here so much as that the emergence of it has shown that of that availability of bytes as if it has shown that that's what we're predisposed to anyway. And it just took previous I, forms. My, so being, I, I like this question because so for, for those of you that don't know, I might, I'm in the learning field. I'm not, not higher education, not, I'm not like Mike, I'm not a professor, um, but I, uh, I work for like, I'm in the corporate learning space. And so bite-size learning has been kind of the way to go. We, you know, you hear micro learning and now we're throwing out a new term out there, nano learning, which is two minutes or less. Um, and I, the, the example I keep going back to is I used to see it. It was a commercial where as a kid, the tire, you know, kid might maybe younger than me. So I know in my generation, I taught, I was learned, I learned, I was learned. <laughs> maybe I should learn grammar, but I learned how to change my tire, change my oil, all that kind of stuff. But now the younger generation, you have those critical thinking skills. It's more of, can I look it up on my phone? And if so, and I'm guilty of that too, just changing the brakes on a car. Like, oh, I, I can easily find this information rather than looking at the Chilton manual to see how to do this and then working my way through there. So mm. I do think that, yes, the the access to, I guess, uh, bite-sized pieces of content, it, it kind of is a shortcut. In my mind, it's a shortcut to the solution rather than if you take away the technology, take away everything, I'm out in the wilderness and something goes wrong. Do I have the critical thinking skills to, for one, identify what the what the problem is, reframe the problem if I need to, and then come up with a solution. So I do think that yes, in a way, technology and the access to bite-sized pieces of content uh, will affect our critical thinking skills. And I also look at with TikTok, the emergence of TikTok, and now you got reels, like we're consuming content in 60 seconds or less. Yeah. And so now our attention spans are also changing. So that's like, that could be a whole other discussion. Yeah. That- well, maybe you could, maybe you could think of it like, um, you know, social media is a tool and mm-hmm. tools can be used for, various things right so uh you know like Kyle like you said like you could use social media or just the internet in general as a tool to like learn how to change the brakes on your car or something like that uh but you could also unwisely use that tool to sit there and consume content you know four hours a day and which is just kitten videos or something like that you know it's just uh it's just a tool so so the critical thinking and I would say common sense on how to use certain tools need to need to be at the forefront before you even engage and before you even know what you're even doing with that tool. Yeah. Cause I mean, going, looking at the chat here, I mean, yeah, the social media, <clears throat> those tools, those tools can be used to spread propaganda, to spread uh, untruthful things. And to someone who doesn't know that doesn't have the, the ability to think for themselves will take, you know, others words for it. Um, will sit there and just take all that as truth and they will go die on that hill um, before they even think about digging in and understanding, well, what is it? That's something I know I want to teach my son. He's five months, so I got I got some time, but I, I do want to teach him. I want you to be able to think for yourself. Somebody tells you something, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. If somebody tells you something, I want you to be able to process what they're saying, but also think for yourself and like, is this a right or wrong? What what does like, here's here's the process, here's what's laid out for you. You have to decide what either is it right or is it wrong, and 
do the best that you can because we can't train for every every scenario out there. So that is that is yeah, that's a very tough one for me. Yeah, I like yeah. what you said that if you take about critical thinking as like the translation of what you're doing or what you're consuming, then yeah, I do I I would I would agree with you and, and Elizabeth who said essentially that yeah, it's it could be affecting critical thinking skills. I just I'm not my whole point is I'm not any more convinced that cognitively offloading your thinking skills to people who are more verbose or put on a production that looks, you know, uh, credible necessarily means that it is so. That's all. It's almost like the embodied form of, let's say, journalism or scientific communication at some point became detached from the pursuit of objective truth. And I don't know how to put those pieces back together at an institution level, but I, I can, I have enough trust in people that over enough time, the good ideas will win out over the bad ideas, if nothing else, because reality imposes itself at some point. I think you, you, you fix it not on the institution level, but rather on the individual level. Okay. Yeah, because uh, just as um, uh, you hear misinformation or whatever types of different information from different news sources, uh, well, hold on, now that's a bad example. Figuring out what you want to post online, um, you could ask yourself, I think it has to change as an individual. Um, should I post this? Is it good to post? Something like that. Uh, but the tool is going to be there. The social media tool is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think taking away from that is probably likely, uh, you know, like dumbing social media down or course correcting or refining it. Um, I think, I think, how we use it's got to change. So that, that begins at an in, at individual level. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right. So we've got probably about another 15 minutes or so. Um, I guess we can take any other questions people have, uh, or we can move straight on to what's next for each of the podcasts. Well, I, I can't see the chat, so I don't know. Are, are people chatting? Yeah, they're saying they really like this Sam character. Thank you. <laughs> I, I really like you, whoever you are. All right, man. So we'll, I'll keep monitoring the chat, but Sam, why don't you kick it off? Talk to us about what's coming next on Conventional Wisdom. Okay, so now that we're done with this Twitter file stuff, um, my next podcast, don't quote me on when it's coming, but it is coming. Uh, it's going to be on, I think... Uh, it's going to be more cultural, actually. So it's going to be a, a discussion about uh, good movies and bad movies. What makes a good movie? What makes a good story? Um, and, and hopefully we can more broadly answer the question, what makes good art? Um, it's an interesting thing because art's always been that thing where it's like, oh, that's subjective. You know, the, uh, uh, the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But is it? So I don't know. Um, well, I'll discuss that and I'll talk a whole lot about different movies and especially the movies that have come out. I have, I'm pretty opinionated with a bunch of uh, movies that are recent and just because I think that they've got terrible uh, uh, morals, like the moral of the story, and then they have bad um, just messages in general. So uh, I think that's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> I might also... <laughs> Question, are you going to talk about John Wick? 
No, I was going to say, yeah, do that one. Do John Wick and Top Gun while you're at it. I'm curious. Uh, I might bring them up just to, just to say, if I, if I do bring up those two, it would be just something like, here are the themes that both John Wick and Top Gun got right. And, and just in the broader context that the rest of the movie uh, industry now is just getting so terribly wrong. Uh, that's why they're, they are quite popular. John Wick, I think, is I don't know the, the success of John Wick 4, but I do know that the, the latest Top Gun uh, pretty much crushed a bunch of records and pretty much saved Hollywood for a bit. So I might bring that up. And I might also do an episode coming up in the future. I might talk about Bitcoin. Mm. That's 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 a it's an odd it's a, maybe a curveball to this uh, to this uh, to at least my um, channel, but there's 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 probably something to be said in there. So Sam is releasing his own line of non fungible tokens. So get in now. Yeah, it's going to be <laughs> hot. Oh, with <laughs> thing. Uh, but no, that's good. Um, so I actually haven't seen any of the John Wicks, which I know is like a cardinal sin in this group. But uh, I'll be interested to hear that. I know we have, I think Joe was watching at least part of the stream. I'm sure maybe you should have him on next because I think he takes a counter position to yours. Um, <laughs> I know he does. Uh, I know he does. <laughs> I, I do want, uh, I actually do, I think it would be uh, beneficial to sit down and talk about like what makes mm -hmm. good art because he's, he's certainly, he, he's another individual who's quite opinionated and, and I, I, I completely respect his opinions. Um, and so I think that would make for a good episode. Yeah. Just don't don't talk badly about Lincoln Park. Whatever you do. <laughs> All right, Cal. What's next on thought pioneering? So thought pioneering, I uh, I was gonna do an episode at the beginning of the year, but our fearless leader had us doing some Twitter files and stuff, so I had to push that back about half a decade. So <laughs> I am doing my next episode called "Growing to Greatness." Uh, the this year, I'm probably I'm kind of taking a newer approach to it where. The, the whole rest, the whole thought behind thought pioneering is is the thought provoking discussion and, and sometimes I'll have a panel I have a people or people on a panel or a person to have a thought provoking discussion on but for those episodes that I'm talking by myself I'm going to be diving into uh, some innovations that are like real life innovations I know one of them that I I'm pretty interested in is stuff that I find fascinating too but one of them is I'm gonna do about a segment uh, at the beginning of the podcast to talk about innovation and then dive into that like explore some some ideas there and then the meat of the episode will be about the art of feedback so it's about growing it's about growth and growth is painful we all know that at this point but you don't know it's kind of like going back to you can't manage what you can't what you don't measure so how to measure how well you're doing and sometimes that comes in the form of feedback so how to how to ask your feedback how to accept feedback how to Take the feedback that you get from other people, whether it be uh, qualitative or quantitative feedback, and apply that to becoming better. So uh, you'll hear me say that say this a lot, but I do believe that good is the enemy of great. And, you know, you, you got to keep looking at it from that angle, because if you remain stagnant, it's, that, it's like that saying there's no growth in the comfort zone, no comfort in the growth zone. So the next episode will be about growing to greatness. And I'll again, I'll throw in a little bit of an innovation share if you will i'm gonna try not to call it that but it'll be like an innovation moment and uh just kind of explore because that is at the, at the very end of the day thought pioneering is a, a, po a podcast about creativity and innovation i want to make sure i keep that at the forefront uh throughout the rest of the year um i do plan on doing some other episodes like what is a thought pioneer thought leadership 
So as a leader, how do you how do you increase like the creativity in others? I did kind of cover a little bit of that with the psychological safety episodes, but that one was geared more towards how do I make people feel like they can contribute their ideas based off of background, whatever it may be. Um, that was that was a fun series. I might actually bring Jane back to talk more about like thoughtful leadership um, and really get her ideas uh, to uh, at, like as we think about. Like, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to say thoughtful, maybe mindful leadership, but just taking into consideration, how do I lead others in a way that's uh, kind of meeting them where they are? So it'll be more of a leadership episode, but yeah, that's the direction I've got for Thought Pioneering. Looking forward to growing to greatness coming out in the next month or so. Real quick, Kyle, <clears throat> or really quickly, rather. You say good is the enemy of great? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe. What about this other cliche that done is better than perfect? Can you add some more flavor to that for me? I don't know what that means. It's a nonsense term. Can you add some more color to that? Can you add some more seasoning? Can you unpack that? Can you add some more cheese to that cracker, Mike? Uh, what do you mean, Don is the enemy of what? Sorry. <laughs> oh, you just didn't hear me. <laughs> yeah. He just had that, like, yeah. cocked and ready. <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, the question was, how do you balance that good is the enemy of great versus done is better than perfect? Oh, well, that's like rapid. It's like, okay. So uh, coming from like the continuous improvement and lean methodology, it's always better to like proto like to continuously improve rather than get it perfect because I don't know, there's, there's like a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of research that goes behind that. But yeah, <clears throat> you say done is better than perfect or what? Yeah. I mean, I may be misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. No, no, well, that sounds like, it sounds like good. It, the the good is the enemy of great. It sounds like you are settling for something, like you're yeah you're settling for something subpar or at least something that's like passable as good. Mm -hmm. The done is the what is it, what was it done is better than perfect. perfect than perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it depends. It Maybe done years. is a big yeah. step. Yeah. You know Maybe. and. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so this is how I I do my my um, my scripts for my podcast. Like, it's a complete rough draft and like as like as rough as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, just just get it done. You know what I mean? It, it, I can improve incrementally. I can I can shape it up. I can do some editing, but just just record, get mm -hmm. it done. You know? Right. But going like from the like the the innovator's mindset, you can ideate done perfect is like the the ideation process. Um, if you will, if I'm taking it in that terms, I can ideate all I want, but unless I actually do something, then then it doesn't really matter. So, and, and when I do like 1.1 of that, whatever it may be, that idea, 99.9% of the time, what you cut, what you draw on the paper versus what is actually implemented, it changes. So hmm. it's better to get it out there, get people to give you feedback on that idea. Yeah, good at the enemy. Good is the enemy of great. Is like don't settle for good. Um, because that is the enemy of becoming great. And then once you are, once you achieve greatness, like at a certain point, that greatness will now be the next good. And so to continuously improve. So that's where the rationale is. Okay. So aim low, but up. Mm. Aim for the sun, land on the moon. Okay. Aim for the moon, land on the sun. I don't know. Whatever you want to splice and dice. I'll put it this way. <laughs> if I wanted the Twitter files presentation to be perfect, we wouldn't have had one to, to go through. Right, yeah. We just had to do this live stream. Well, it's the end of Q1, so that was the nice hard stopping point. So we have a couple messages from uh, David, Nahal, and Sarah all about ChatGPT because we promised we'd get to that. So we'll oh get to that gosh, right before please. closing. 
Um, Please let me. Because it's a fair enough issue. But speaking of ChatGPT, if you want to hear more about it, I have a returning guest for my next episode, Leandra Gonzalez, who will be on. And I hope to have that episode out next week. Probably by the end of the week. If not, it'll be the very early the week after. Um, it's a long podcast. Probably the longest single podcast episode I've done. So she was kind enough to come on the first time and discuss data science. She's She works at one of the tech companies as a data science professional and has all the bona fides to back it up. Uh, this time we kind of, you know, we, we kind of did a dance around some of the more controversial stuff and where there might be philosophical disagreements in the first episode, but we, uh, we weren't hiding from it. We were just having a conversation about data science, but any conversation about data science, any good conversation needs to be grounded in analytical rigor, but also um, ethical reflection, something like that. And so we get into that in this next episode. So she was, superb in that regard um so highly recommend that one uh and very grateful for her, her coming out and showing out in that regard i have another episode that it was released earlier this year from kyle it's an interview with kyle maxwell um he does a lot more opining so it's a little bit less uh conversant in that way but it was the kind of an inside look at someone who's a young man trying to bootstrap his own philosophy on life and doing it in a way by kind of reading some of the great texts and reaching back in some, into some of their minds. And so I think that in that sense, it was, it was really, uh, it was really awesome. Uh, and so it's cool to be able to explore that. He's got his own YouTube channel, his own stuff he's doing. So check him out if you're interested, Kyle Maxwell. Um, all right. Now with that stuff out of the way, oh, uh, obligatory shill for the merch is, and the locals page. And oh, we have a free newsletter, the Freedom Cast Courant. It's a weekly newswire. We'll also post some additional Substack articles through there. We'll probably have some Twitter file stuff coming on uh, before too long. But in any case, uh, all those will be in the links to this uh, recording and they should be in the description of it now. Um, so if you're interested, that's where you can find it. Now we promised something about ChatGPT. So... All right. Nahal says she is uh, concerned about the increasing use of large language models of search engines because it gets hard to separate fact from falsehood because of artificial hallucinations or large language models like ChatGPT conviction that the information is correct. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, a couple points here. What are your thoughts on ChatGPT to the extent you've interacted with it? And then, in a world increasingly run by imperfect but still impressive engines, what how do we discern truth i think chad are you asking the us yeah yeah well i did mine like sarcastically i sent you all all the screenshots um kyle was stress testing some of the bias claims yeah so i go back so as an lnd professional i was i taught an unconscious bias course and still have um one of the examples that we used was the youtube analysis or youtube story where the story behind that was youtube was creating like unconscious bias with interest there because a lot of the engineers the the youtube were right-handed so they created the app to be right-handed and it was uh bias against left-handed users so left-handed users would upload the videos up the videos would be upside down that was like the whole story but here the audacity yeah how dare they um but here it's okay i think mike or one of y'all brought it up earlier it's like yeah you have like ai is still good but you have to have a human element to like that right some like somewhere there's a human element and if that human element is biased in any way that's only going to be amplified with 
that AI, because at that point it's just going to continue like to learn. I don't know. I'm not an AI expert. But, I'm not an AI expert. So. But the, there's no no bias situation. This is like there's no yeah there's not. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't begrudge people their bias. I just want I just want an honest characterization of it, as honestly as you can represent it. And fair enough. And then we can, you know, if I know where you're coming from and you know where I'm coming from, then it's like all right, we came from different perspectives. We can still have a conversation. I mean, I think we can still have a conversation. But you're right. To the layperson, an algorithm is just presented kind of as an oracle. And I think this is kind of what Nahal's point is, which is, hey, if you know this oracle tells me something is true, and I say, mm -hmm. that doesn't sound true, but there's pushback, which you can generate output from these algorithms that says something like, no, 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 I'm right. Um, then where does that leave us, Sam? Well, I have a uh, just a philosophical sort of take on this emergence of AI. I'm not, I don't know what... Um, the future might look like as far as AI uh, taking over some jobs. I suspect that as AI uh, does more work of humans, I think humans are just going to find new jobs. I, I think that's probably been the case with just more emergent technologies. Um, but when it comes to like querying things into the internet and having, you don't know if it's AI come back, you know, I, it's the same thing with like photographs you you've seen like the ai generated art you know that some of them are you know uh extremely difficult to tell the difference between like what's real and what's not so i think i think what's going to happen is that people are going to if they are well i don't know if you i could say the majority or minority here i don't know there's going to be some subset of the population that's going to be increasingly suspicious of everything that they're seeing, whether it be an image or a photo or a video or a, some article, anything, because it could be AI generated and you don't really know whether it's real or not. So there's going to be some part of the population that's going to have to think a bit more critically, first of all, at at how do you behave and what what are some of your priorities given that you don't fully understand the truth around you sure. um and if you want if i could show my own podcast i talked about my values mm -hmm. uh episode and what to do when you don't know what's true you know um as i describe in that in that episode there's a everyone's got sort of a hierarchy of values and um Towards the top, I think for at least for me and hopefully for everybody, truth should be high up there. Um, we should always be striving to know what is true. Unfortunately, with the emergence of AI, I think that's going to call into question a lot of things. And you're going to have to understand what could possibly be above that truth value um, because you simply won't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you could ask the Internet something, you know, what what happened. You can even ask it a historical fact. And like, you know, it could come back and tell you and, you know, maybe a textbook says one thing, but this says, but if you don't have a textbook, you have to just take this for what it's worth. So to really not know what's true, you are going to have to figure out what do you value that's that's like, like, how are you going to push forward when you don't know what's true, what's around you? How are you going to behave? What's the thing that's going to maybe provide meaning to you? Um. People are going to have to come to terms with that. And I think ultimately that's going to point towards, well, a value that's higher than, than truth. And I think for many, it's probably God. Um, so 
that's that's probably what people are going to uh, like i said maybe some some subset of the population is going to at least have a challenging thought about this it's, in my opinion philosophically that's where it's going to lead yeah it's i mean the to the extent people are just you know rational calculators which we're not but at a species level or at least at a market level like we do make some consequential calculations and i think that in a situation where you have a voluminous information environment and so much of it seems to be credible just about the worst thing you could do is spend the decade preceding this advent of this new technology um, promoting disinformation experts who do nothing but make the problem worse um, yeah and For now sure. we're less equipped than we would otherwise be because we actually needed people who were genuinely disinformation experts and really knew this stuff to step forward. And now that well is poisoned. Um, and there's not really much you can do about it, uh, unfortunately, but you could be honest communicators and you can be authentic. So this is going to, uh, Cindy's point, which is, I think we will, uh, we will come to a point that if we don't see it firsthand, we have to question its authenticity. And I think that, yeah, this goes back to the verify, but how do you verify? How do you ground truth? And so, yeah, the advent of increasingly you can just chime in kyle <laughs> you good well i was saying i i need to run so. you're good all right thanks buddy we'll be off in a thank second thank you everyone appreciate all it right. yeah check out thought pioneering um so yeah i think with these increasingly powerful algorithms uh, we, you know whether or not agi ever comes around is perhaps a separate point we can do plenty of damage without having artificial general intelligence and uh I, yeah, there will be economic displacement, to be sure. I don't know if that's a net positive or not. I suspect that maybe in the short term, probably not, but in the long term, maybe. Um, but, you know, when you can't ground truth anything or when you have to question so much around you, we need to, pe we need to give people ladders to cognitive faculties to still be able to navigate the world. And I think having a, an explicit values hierarchy is, is one of those things. <clears throat> and if you don't have that, then I suspect what you will do is you will treat the algorithm as if it's a deity. And uh, it's not clear that that's wise. I mean, you can say that something like the inherited biblical tra tradition is socially constructed. It's like, yeah, 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 okay. But it's uh, going to be no less socially constructed than, I think, how people operate in the presence of these things. But at the same time, there's very kind of what people would not consider flashy or sexy ways to interact with these machines that just help people do work. And in that sense, I don't want to overstate the, the case for or against large language models or any other sort of kind of cutting edge algorithm. I think they're important. I think it will be, I know enough to know that I don't know how it's going to shake out on the economic front. On the philosophical front, people should, should read and know why they believe what they believe and have a system by which they're willing to update their beliefs and make that as explicit as possible because otherwise you can't hold yourself to it. And that's who you're accountable to is yourself and anyone you have responsibility over. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's super deep. Um, we should probably, maybe if we don't have anything to talk about next quarter, is just spend an entire thing on this. And what we can try and do is we can try and get more people on this because we do have some supporters. We promised them that they could get on the live stream. So maybe we'll... Well, actually, I, I was kind of thinking... Um back when I was talking about what episodes I was going to mm -hmm. do, I was kind of thinking like, maybe just send it out to the chat be like, Hey chat, if there's anybody 
that has a deep philosophical like question or problem and you want to do an episode with me about it, you know, send a, send it my way. Mm-hmm. And um, we could probably do it, you know, if it's if it if it's a, a a good deep question that you can really sort of do a deep dive on, then I would love to do an episode with you. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely check out Sam's bumper episode. You know, it's like what are 90 seconds long, but then his first episode, he kind of lays out what his conceptualization of wisdom is and delineates it from just like book smarts or, you know, rationality or Or smarts that you might get from an AI. Yeah, true. And so we'll see on that front. I think that Kurt Girdle and the postmodern critiques and Dave Chapman from AI and MIT, I think all these people kind of hit on something on the limits of logical systems. And that will probably save us from true great AGI, you know, AGI threats, um, at least until maybe the quantum comes or something. But uh, like I said, you could do plenty of damage with systems that are not AGI. And so we'll see. Mm. Um, but yeah, watch out for deep fakes. Don't believe everything you see. Find some voices you trust. We'll try to be some of those voices. Um, and we'll be honest when we get stuff wrong. And other than that, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll say what we think and represent it we'll as honestly. Speak freely. We'll speak freely. There you go. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. And this will be up. And if you want to reach out to us, just go to freedomcast.us. All right, guys. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Thanks.